From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. He was one of the first Coloradans diagnosed with COVID-19. Today, we check back in with Ian. His fever broke. He was feeling better. And so the health department sent over um, one of their techs in kind of light hazmat gear. He came down to the basement, did the nose swabs. And they sent the new test off. Then in Glenwood Springs, a sewing project that could save lives. Never in my wildest dreams would I ever imagine that I'd be sewing my own personal protective equipment. Plus caveats if you're thinking of making your own masks for healthcare workers. Also, Denver Health grows its ICU to handle COVID-19. And a break from the pandemonium with the late artist Clifford Still. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and let's start with some good news. I don't know about you, but I sure could use it. Ian, one of the first Coloradans diagnosed with COVID-19, is healthy again and has left isolation. The 46-year-old Denver man first spoke to us earlier this month while he was holed up in his basement. How's he feeling now? I'm feeling much better, thanks. I still have a little cough, but other than that, I'm, I feel 100%. At your worst, how did you feel? You know, I, as it turns out, I've since talked and texted with a few people that have had it, friends of friends, and I think I really had a mild case. My fever was a lot less in duration and in, you know, its high point. How high did it get? I think my highest was 101.6 somewhere in there, but it was never over 102. And I've heard stories of people in the 103 plus for four to five days. Uh, were you able to keep your family from catching it? I was, thankfully. You know, like I mentioned in the in the first interview, um, we were very disciplined about my isolation in the basement. As it turns out, it it seemed to work. Our two little guys have been completely healthy. My wife had, you know, what seemed like a cold. Oh my gosh, she must have been so nervous. Absolutely. I mean, how can you not jump right to uh, the virus and is it coming on? You were one of the earliest diagnosed cases in Colorado and you were ordered legally to isolate. Did you ever hear back from the health department to get the all clear? I did receive a negative test finally. I think it it was seven or eight days after I was symptomatic that we called and said that I'd been fever-free for a few days and we wanted to take a test to see kind of where I stood. And so the health department sent over um, one of their techs in kind of light hazmat gear. He came down to the basement, did the nose swabs. You know, unfortunately it took five or six days to get those results, but thankfully they came back negative. So at that point, we uh, quickly heard back from our original contact that put us in that legal quarantine. And she said that uh, I was free to go and that the family quarantine was lifted as well. Well, it's interesting, free to go because you emerge into a world that is self-quarantining. Right. It was funny. So much changed in my eight days of isolation. And as I was coming back and free to go, everybody else was starting to hunker down. So, yeah, that was pretty wild. But as you can imagine, 
freedom from the basement is a big deal. The ability to go outside, hang out with the family, go for a walk, that all felt great. What are your concerns about catching it again? How careful are you being? I have been in some public settings, and uh, it's a little eerie. I was kind of surprised at my reaction. I really wanted to steer clear of people, not so they wouldn't get anything from me, but just didn't want to go through that whole deal again. And I've heard mixed reviews from the doctors watching the news that, you know, perhaps there is some immunity to this. Others say they don't have any conclusive evidence or research to suggest that someone would be. So I, I'm I'm still playing it safe. We're obviously living a similar life. I'm just not in the basement. I, I do feel like a lot of the world is not taking the shelter in place or self-quarantine very seriously, and that concerned me. You just see a lot of activity in the parks and a lot of activity when you drive around. So hopefully what happened this week with Polis and Mayor Hancock is taken seriously and we start to see some real social distancing. Do you feel grateful? Do you feel relieved? Do you feel lucky? How do you feel? You know, I'd say I feel all all of those. I feel... Like I'm sure a lot of people uh, these days, you know, it's it's been a sort of a good time to slow down and reflect. And I'm very appreciative of, you know, our family, the help that I have, the, all the support that I had when I was sick. You realize that you, you take a lot for granted when you come down with something like that that's, that is taking lives. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot lately about in a way, how little you have if you don't have your health. Does that resonate? Absolutely. So I hope I can maintain it and kind of carry that with me. After the test results came back negative, that you had essentially beat COVID-19, were your kids, was your wife just like a little hesitant to hang out with you? Yeah, I was still coughing a fair amount at that point. I was probably more concerned than they were. After a couple of days of maintaining sort of that six, eight feet, we were right back to kind of normal family life. Do you think you'll be avoiding that basement for a while? Yeah. Thanks so much for being with us, Ian. Absolutely. That is Ian from Denver. We agreed not to use his last name. He was one of the first Coloradans diagnosed with COVID-19 and has since tested negative. Okay, we're going to spend some time now talking about masks. We know there are shortages for healthcare workers, and so people have offered to make masks at home, DIY style. Coming up, why that's ill-advised. But first, to Garfield County, that's near the coronavirus hotspots of Aspen and Vail. At Valley View Hospital in Glenwood Springs, nurses are repurposing a special material that was already on hand and fashioning masks. Other hospitals are taking notes. I spoke with one of these nurses, Kristen Dirksen. Kristen, thank you for being with us. Thank you, Brian. Start by telling me about the material that you're using. We are making masks out of the blue surgical wrap that normally covers our surgical instruments in the operating room. And that has some special important quality, I imagine. Yeah, we did quite a bit of research, and what we found is that it's actually very similar 
to the materials that our surgical masks are made out of already. And it has a very similar bacterial filtration efficiency, 97% for this blue surgical wrap versus the 98% of our surgical masks that we use. Listen, listen so. to you. This, yes, this is clearly <laughs> someone who has done their research, learned all the lingo, learned the percentages. Um, yeah. And so that doesn't I mean think... that the masks are foolproof, but they're, they're decent, huh? Right. Obviously, they are not scientifically tested. But based on what we did, doing our homework, doing some research on the material, we felt like it was the next best thing. Yeah. I want to be clear that this isn't the only mask that your staff is wearing, correct? These are sort of supplemental. correct. Yes. Currently, we're using our masks in the hospital to wear over N95 masks to protect them and extend their life. We're also utilizing them for patients coming into the emergency department to cover them as well. Mm. Kristen, how did you get this idea? Last week, uh, during one of our staff meetings, we were discussing the nationwide shortage of protective equipment and what the hospital's plan was to manage that supply. Following that meeting, another nurse, Brady, and I met to sort of brainstorm some ways to offset this impending shortage. I do a lot of sewing on my own, so I thought, why don't we try to sew a mask if This is something that we are potentially going to run out of. Something is better than nothing. So then we did some brainstorming, um, came up with a prototype. And the next day, Brady was actually able to present our idea to the hospital's incident command. And the immediate outpouring of support was honestly a bit of a surprise. Mm -hmm. We really had no idea the chain reaction that our idea would cause. And that day, um, actually, the hospital pulled together enough resources to purchase sewing machines, all the needed materials to start producing our masks. And even our plastic surgeon, Dr. Butterfield, who is used to stitching up her own patients, learned to sew and got to work. (laughs) (laughs) Really cool. How did you find a pattern for a medical-grade mask? doesn't strike right. me as something that you just go on to joannefabric.com and, and, you know, find. You know, we just took a look at a surgical mask that we already use, took some measurements from that, looked at how it was constructed, and made our own pattern for a mask. I'm thinking about what must be the most complicated part of the mask, which is that little bridge for the nose. What are you doing for that? <laughs> You know, we're actually putting in a pipe cleaner um, (laughs) (laughs) into the bridge of the nose to give that extra structural support. And so a little bit of arts and crafts there, too. (laughs) How many masks have you made so far and and how many do you imagine you'll make in total? So this morning I heard that we've made well over 5,000 masks. Oh, wow. And our goal is 10,000. We really want to just get ahead of this thing and be prepared for a potential surgeon patient. But Kristen, this all assumes you have enough of that material that wrapped surgical instruments. I mean, is there just like a kind of endless storehouse of that? What's the deal? You know, we had a lot of backstock in our hospital just preparing for our surgeries. And now that all of our electives have been canceled, 
we have some of that material, and then we also ordered additional material to make the masks. Do you have to be mindful of how kind of sterile the environment is of the sewing so that you don't contaminate something even before it's in use? Right. So we have tons of staff across the hospital helping us with that in mind, uh, knowing that someone could be potentially infected and not know it. Uh, We are going the extra step and sterilizing these masks. So we put them in a steam sterilizer that we have in our sterile processing department. And each of the masks are going through this process being steam sterilized before they go out to the rest of the hospital. Is it something that other hospitals could replicate? And I wonder if you've gotten inquiries. Absolutely. We have had an outpouring of positive response across the nation. We've had several hospitals contact us. We had created a YouTube video that other hospitals can reference. And any hospital with a sterile materials management department can help do this as well. I can imagine people listening to this and finding this charming and lovely and also incredibly disturbing that in the face of a global pandemic, uh, medical workers like yourself are essentially doing an arts and crafts project to keep people healthy. Um, Can you reflect on that for me? Um, Right now, um, you know, never in my wildest dreams would I ever imagine that I'd be sewing my own personal protective equipment. But I think the bigger picture of this um, and what it's given us so far is just a little bit of hope in this crazy moment in time, just to see everyone come together and help us in this one effort is pretty incredible. Thank you for joining us. And I want to thank you especially for doing what you do right now. Thank you. Thank you so much. Kristen Dirksen is a nurse at Valley View Hospital in Glenwood Springs. She's leading a project to make masks with material that's used to package surgical instruments. They considered using cotton, by the way, but learned it would be ineffective. Now a message that may be hard to hear. Don't try this at home. Now, we're aware of many dedicated efforts to sew masks, and listener Janine Myers of Longmont has heard about them as well. She is a seamstress turned nurse, of all things, and she had this question for Colorado Wonders. I would like to get together some seamstresses, home sewers, that could possibly start this, but I wouldn't want to start making a lot unless we knew exactly what kind of fabrics to use that the medical profession can be able to use them with them functioning properly. Well, Janine, CPR editor Kelly Griffin, who oversees Colorado Wonders, has looked into what public health officials and the medical community are saying about these homemade masks. Hi, Kelly. Hi, Ryan. What have you found out? Medical professionals say they appreciate the outpouring from the community. 
This mask shortage came up early in the pandemic and was widely reported in the media, of course. And then we'd hear from nurses and doctors on social media asking for masks, the N95 or certified surgical masks. And that's when people who can sew swung into action, sharing patterns and fabric suggestions and collecting the homemade masks. Will their masks help fill the gap? In contrast, I'll say, to the ones we just talked about, with the nurse in Glenwood Springs. Will the homemade masks fill the gap? No, it really doesn't look like they will, according to health officials. They say that it's too risky to use these untested masks as protective gear. And remember that masks and other equipment meet strict protocols to filter these tiny little viruses, and they must arrive at hospitals fully sterilized. So it's hard to do something like that DIY. Michelle Barron is the medical director of infection prevention and control at UC Health. She says they won't use the homemade masks in medical settings based on what they know now. We're so grateful to people in the public that are trying to help with this process, but a lot of the materials they're using probably haven't been tested in the healthcare setting. We work in a scientific field where we need evidence that these things are proper. She says UC Health is examining other supplies. There are prototypes for 3D printed masks, and there's some research now on new ways to sterilize medical masks so you can reuse them. CSU is also doing research on these, and there's very little research on cotton masks. But she says one study showed significantly higher rates of infection through a cotton mask compared to surgical masks. Mm. That's why the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says not to use these makeshift cotton masks unless it's a last resort. And even then, they say it should be paired with a full-face plastic shield. If not for healthcare workers, though, is there anyone who would be helped by like a cotton mask or another kind of DIY mask? And that's what our question asker Janine Myers, the nurse we heard from earlier, wanted to know. I'm kind of just wondering if we made a bunch of masks, if we just like stood out in front of King Super and handed them out. I mean, that's a way to go too, right? And we've heard from other people who insist they must have some value. But remember, a mask that isn't blocking the virus from your nose and mouth may actually be holding it there in a nice, moist, warm environment. Oh my God, I never thought of that. Yeah. So if it isn't proven to help, it could actually hurt. Huh. The State Department of Public Health recommends you avoid touching your face with hands that might be contaminated, so the mask could defeat that purpose. The other thing that health officials point out is a mask could give you and others around you a false sense of security, when in fact you aren't arresting the spread of the virus. I kept hearing from officials that the key ways to avoid getting infected are wash your hands really thoroughly and really often, wipe down surfaces, especially things you use often, and keep your hands away from your face. It's hard to do, but really important. And they say, if you do all that, there's no reason to wear a mask if you aren't sick. What if you are sick? What about a mask then? Yes. Health officials say at that point, you could wear a mask, but they make a point of saying it should be a medical grade mask with all the protections it provides. They are not recommending homemade masks in that case either. Kel, I do think, though, that people are eager to help right now, and they see making masks as a way to do that. Yes, that's right. And that's what makes this such a disappointing thing to hear, is that those masks can't come to the rescue. Thanks for being with us. You're welcome.
CPR's Kelly Griffin, who edits Colorado Wonders, she'll be on in the days and weeks ahead to answer your questions, which you can submit through CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders. Colorado wilderness is increasingly off limits as the state tries to stem the spread of the novel coronavirus. The U.S. Forest Service has closed facilities across the state, while Colorado Parks and Wildlife shuttered campgrounds, playgrounds, and some picnic areas in state parks. The good news, trails in state parks remain open, says spokesman Jason Clay. Hiking, walking, biking, running, uh, fishing is a good one. You can go snowshoeing or cross-country skiing if you're at one of those parks that has that opportunity. But we are highly recommending that everyone follows the, the guidelines that are being set out there and, and maintaining safe distances from people. And that can take some work because state parks have been quite popular as people fend off cabin fever. We've seen a rise in visitation across all our state parks over the last couple of weeks. Some of them are reaching the levels that they normally see during the summer months. And a lot of the busy times have kind of been in that 11 a.m. to 3 o'clock ballpark. Um, So we we recommend people to try to shoot for some of the maybe the non-peak hours if they want to go to a state park and and have a bike ride or go on a a hike. Now, most state park restrooms are open, but you might want to bring your own hand sanitizer. One park that is particularly busy is Bar Lake outside of Denver. Park manager Michelle Subert says people come to catch a glimpse of the resident bald eagles. And just a lot of new people, really. So people maybe that taking a nature walk hasn't been on their list because they've been busy. Um, now they're kind of everyone's kind of taking a step back, and I think it's great. People are are wanting to get outside. If you can't get to a state park, Subert suggests one of the online nature programs that state park rangers are hosting, or maybe just opening a window or front door for a bit. Take a minute and go outside, and for just one minute, you can sit there and listen and count how many different bird songs that you could hear. Because each bird has a different song that they sing, whether it's the black cat chickadee, and you'll hear the dee-dee-dee-dee, or the boisterous blue jay. So I think just taking that time to go out and just listen to nature. Here at CPR News, we are fielding a lot of questions about the state's still new stay-at-home order. What sorts of outings are essential? What are not? Questions about enforcement. So what would you like clarity on? What concerns do you have? Share them with us, Matters at CPR.org, and we'll get the answers. Email address once again, Matters at CPR.org. This is CPR News. Denver Health has greatly expanded its intensive care unit in the face of COVID-19. It is already treating patients with the disease, and like hospitals across the country, it's trying to secure more necessary supplies, including personal protective equipment. On the phone with us now is Denver Health's 
uh, Dr. Ivor Douglas. He's an ICU pulmonologist. And doctor, welcome to the program. Ryan, thank you very much for the invitation. And many thanks to CPR for very diligent, thoughtful reporting through a difficult period. Well, that's a nice thing to say. I'm going to thank you for your work as well. I imagine that it can be uh, difficult, unsettling at times. You, I are, assume, are braced for a wave of these patients. Any sign of that wave yet? Yeah, Ryan, um, both at Denver Health and across our region, ICUs are very much feeling the initial phase of a very significant upsurge of gravely ill, critically ill patients with uh, respiratory and other complications of COVID infection. Remembering that uh, this really represents the tip of the spear and the, the people that are very, very sick now are folks that probably contracted this illness well before our state implemented uh, shelter-in-place guideline. Um, but the extent of this is going to be pretty remarkable and it's going to strain all of our care services, both to and potentially over the max. Can you give us a sense of numbers at Denver Health? How many COVID-19 patients do you have right now, for instance? Yeah, you know, Denver Health is an integrated uh, health facility, both the hospital, our ambulatory program and outpatient programs. We touch about 40% of Denver Health, of Denver residents and Denver City and County residents. So, uh, you know, between our screenings, uh, the inpatients, we're looking at hundreds of patients that have been through our screening program and in-house today are uh, over 50 patients between our uh, acute care wards and our ICUs. Um, unfortunately, the folks that are in my ICU, there are over a dozen, uh, all, are all gravely ill and, and with one exception uh, are on mechanical ventilation life support for uh, bad organ failure this morning. <sighs> it's hard to absorb. Okay, gravely ill means, as you've just said, that they are, for the most part, on ventilators. What else does gravely ill mean? Yeah, so, Ryan, I think this is really important because I want to highlight two aspects of this. The first is uh, the level of preparation that mine and other institutions invest in this. And uh, to care for gravely ill patients means that they have a form of severe breathing failure called acute respiratory distress syndrome, I'll call it ARDS for the rest of today's discussion. But along with that, they have low blood pressure called shock. A few of them have developed a form of kidney failure requiring a dialysis machine to run continuously. And uh, one of the strategies that we employ uh, very extensively is the management of these patients lying not on their back, but lying on their stomach. And so uh, we call this prone position ventilation. Uh, we and others have uh, spent a good amount of time researching this, and our colleagues in Lombardy, Milan, and others uh, in Italy, and certainly colleagues uh, on the east and west coasts, have identified that this is a, an enhancing strategy to uh, improve the likelihood that people will survive mechanical ventilation in the ICU. What is it about laying on your chest that would improve your health? Yeah. <laughs> I think really the key points are two. One, it makes the ventilator work in a, in a more effective way to open the lungs and improve oxygen. And it also prevents the ventilator itself dam further damaging the lungs. It's been uh, fairly well established now for a couple of decades that while ventilation can be life-saving on one hand, the, it, it's, it can be highly injurious at the same time. And so we, we'll really walk a very fine line between doing good and doing further harm with our life support strategies. 
I really do need by that to infer that a that life support is not just plugging in a machine next to a patient, but it's the uh, the whole package of outstanding experts, breathing specialists, uh, nurses, therapists, and then the the most important people in my ICU are the environmental service workers, who uh, really ensure that we can work in a safe, uh, clean environment to care for these gravely ill patients. How much has Denver Health expanded its ICU? My understanding is that it it might even be growing to other floors of the hospital. Is that is that true? Yeah, Ryan, that's that's true. That's true of our institution and every major hospital in our region and country. So we, under under normal circumstances, between our surgery unit and our medical cardiac unit and uh, what's called a progressive or intermediate care unit, run in the order of about 56 adult ICU beds on a daily basis. And, and those are usually pretty full. We often run 85 to 90% capacity on a good day oh. with people who are critically ill without COVID. So we are, we are um, more than tripling the potential capacity, but we're doing it in phases. So we opened up this week another, another 18 beds We'll add another 30 beds next week, and we have potential to take our full ICU capacity north of 150 if we uh, if we get there. And again, I think that's exclusively to the credit of our very thoughtful administration that's been well ahead of this crisis and done some very careful planning to help those of us on the front line do the work that we need to do. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and my guest is Dr. Ivor Douglas. He specializes in ICU care. He's a pulmonologist at Denver Health. We're talking about how Denver Health is responding uh, to what sounds like the beginning of the wave they are bracing for of COVID-19 patients. And, uh, Doctor, are you noticing any commonalities amongst the patients there, or, or is it a rather broad range of folks? So um, there, there are commonalities at a macro level, and I touch on those, and then there's just the most fascinating spectrum of uh, granular clinical differences. Let's touch on the macro observations because they have real public health importance. Okay. I'm caring for people younger than 40 years old as well as older people with comorbidities. This, this illness, which was billed as hitting older and chronically ill patients predominantly, certainly in the North American and mainly European experience, is a disease of all ages of adults. A remarkable observation about how protected kidneys are, although they can get infected, don't get sick. But, you know, the, there is no doubt that people in our, in our region uh, of, uh, of working and uh, economically productive age are really taking the brunt of this as much as older, uh, less well people. The second macro observation is just how uh, patients who can be doing, quote, fine for a few days in the hospital can rapidly deteriorate. Now, that's not a novel observation. Uh, we owe to our Chinese, Korean, uh, Italian and Iranian colleagues the uh, learned observations about the natural history of this illness. And, uh, you know, in some ways to our advantage is that we are seven to maybe 10 days behind our colleagues in Europe and the, the, the East Coast. And so um, it, it does give us just a little bit of a, a jog into the sprint uh, pre- preparation opportunity to, prepare, to see these people. Doctor, do you have the supplies you need? Do you have ample ventilators? Do you have ample masks? Ryan, um, 
the answer for today and the immediate future is yes. The answer once we hit the peak of this illness, because none of us can really optimally predict both the timing and amplitude of that, is I truly don't know, but I am fearful. I can say that based on even our conservative estimates, we will run out of ventilators to treat one patient at a time with a ventilator if, if as I anticipate, things are going to go. Uh, the notion that this is over anytime soon is not even a serious debate. This is, uh, this is going to tax every institution, large and small. And again, the people ask me repeatedly, friends and contacts, what can I do? And I say, prepare to just buckle down and adhere to the, sep- the social separation guidelines for a long time. Please don't let up on this. It is crucial for us to do the work we're doing for folks in the community to understand the social contract the obligation that they have right now. That's not necessarily the message we're hearing from Washington, is it? You know, Ryan, I think that we should avoid gaslighting on this. Let's have serious scientifically engaged debates. Um, whatever the, the messaging is uh, from the federal government is one thing. I, I think that those of us who are seriously engaged in a science-based response to this uh, follow the epidemi- epidemiology and the natural history of these illnesses. And I think that's really the only way that we can inform the rational decision-making at the moment. So I, I want to be responsible in asking this question. When you say, you know, hunker down, do you have a timeline that you would assign to that or until further notice? Yeah, so Ryan, I, I can only uh, reiterate the guidance from uh, our governor and uh, responsible parties in the federal government who have made very, very clear that uh, this is uh, until further notice of uh, responsibility. You know, I have a 20 and 18 year old, one home from college, one off school doing homeschooling. Um, and uh, yeah, they more than any are itchy to say, Dad, when can we, when can we be people again? And, and responsibly, the answer is this is a unique time where it is our collective obligation to listen to responsible leadership and follow guidance uh, in, in every possible way that we can. I, I think the correct answer to the question is uh, this is indefinite. Follow guidance from the central uh, authority of, of each state. Dr. Douglas, before we go, I just want to check in on you physically and mentally. How are you protecting your mind and your body? Um, two ways. Uh, I have an absolutely remarkable team that I work with, and I have a phenomenal group of family and friends that are a remarkable well of support. Um, I, uh, I have been, until a couple of days ago, running out in Cherry Creek State Park, listening to a lot of music um, and debriefing with my team. We do a lot of mindfulness. Um, and really, my team is uh, unquestionably the source of uh, moral and emotional support. This isn't. This is terrifying. Um, it's, it's sort of some balance between terrifying and completely energizing, because there's so much to do. Um, but on the other hand, uh, you know, this is not a time to uh, take your eye off the ball. This this is nominally what a pro- the calling of profession is, and I think leading authentically is is what keeps me focused. I appreciate your time. I know it's precious, and uh, I'd very much like to hear from you again. Thanks, Dr. Douglas. Ryan, thank you for all you're doing to uh, convey uh, fact-based reporting on this. Appreciate it. ICU pulmonologist Dr. Ivor Douglas with the scene today at Denver Health.
This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I believe in comeback stories and second chances, and I believe in recovery. I'm Vic Vela. I'm the host of a new recovery podcast called Back From Broken. I'm a recovering cocaine addict myself, and I've been talking to people who have made their own comebacks. I'm proud to be a PTSD survivor. A counselor in therapy has changed my life for the better. Listen and subscribe now at backfrombroken.org or wherever you get your podcasts. The late painter Clifford Still was brilliant, prolific, and difficult. He remains well-respected in the art world, although that world didn't always understand his brilliance. One of Still's paintings recently sold at auction for $24 million. And of course, a Denver museum is devoted entirely to his work. It can display no other artist. A new documentary about Clifford Still features recordings he made that have never been heard before. When I hang a painting, I would have it say, here am I. This is my presence, my feeling, myself. Here I stand, implacable, proud, alive, naked, unafraid. If one does not like it, he should turn away, because I am looking at him. He sounds rather imposing, doesn't he? which is how it can feel to stand before one of Still's giant paintings with what might look like a lightning bolt shooting down a dark canvas. This new film, Lifeline, tells the story of Still's rocky relationship with the art establishment and with other artists like Jackson Pollock and Mark Rothko. The director of the film is art collector and documentarian Dennis Scholl. And Dennis, welcome to Colorado Matters. Thank you. It's great to be here. Still was a pioneer in the field of abstract expressionism, which springs up after World War II. Help us understand this term lifeline, how it plays into Still's work. Well, the tale is told that Still was really treated like a hired hand by his father, who who was a subsistence farmer. And one day he tied a rope around Still's ankles and lowered him all the way down a well they were digging to see if they had hit water yet. (laughs) And all Still could remember is going down that well, down, 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 and finally, you know, getting to the bottom well and then being brought back up. And somehow it had a profound effect on him. And that became kind of the metaphor for the lifeline that he put in most of his paintings. Yeah, the lifeline. So I described it as something resembling a lightning bolt. How would you convey it to people? No, I, I, I think that's fair. His paintings are very craggy. Um, <sighs> there, there are references to landscape, although he would never admit that there were landscape references. He grew up on the Alberta Prairie and then North Dakota and then finally wound up in uh, San Francisco and New York. But he, he always was able to kind of convey this mountainous feeling where the paintings feel bigger than you are, not just in scale, but in the way that they impact you personally. Do you think that was abusive of his father? And do you think it paints a picture of like the broader home that, that Clifford still probably grew up in? I think that uh, being a farmer at, in that time was a very, very difficult moment. Still also talks about shucking wheat and being forced to kind of gather it and put it together until your arms bleed. And, and in the museum, in the very early part of the museum with, with his early work, there's a painting he made that is a picture 
of, of somebody leaning over shucking wheat with the blood literally running down their arms. So I, I, I think it all had a tremendous impact on him and made him simply want to get away. Yeah, it's fascinating when you walk through the Clifford Still Museum in Denver, which hopefully we'll be able to do again at some point. Uh, you do you do see how he begins with figures, recognizable human form, and then he uh, graduates, evolves into the kinds of craggy, abstract expressionist paintings that we've been talking about thus far. Um, I think it's evident in the tape we heard at the top of Clifford Still, and this is certainly a theme in your film, that very strong principles guided his art, and I think in some ways his life. What would you say those principles were? I think the most important thing for him were two things. One, integrity, and second, control of his work. He was very, very wary of the what we would call the art industrial complex, that group of uh, dealers, critics, curators and large museums that seemed to kind of run the art world with puppet strings. He was terrified of that and, and disdainful of it, and he wouldn't play, basically. <laughs> he, he would talk to critics, but he really held them in, in, uh, in, in disdain. He, he, he really disliked critics, I think, more than anybody else. And, um, and, and, and so he wouldn't – the art world is a situation where you go along to get along. And uh, he wouldn't do it and wound up withdrawing almost completely. I kept thinking as I watched your film how much Clifford Still would hate Twitter. <laughs> Just how showy it is and how everyone has an opinion. Uh, Clifford Still was part of a group of artists who remain well known today, including Jackson Pollock, Mark Rothko, as I mentioned, Barnett Newman. Uh, why don't we hear from Still's daughter, Sandra Still Campbell? describing uh, his influence on those other artists. He liberated their work. Their work changed almost overnight because of him. They were fumbling, where do we go from here? And Clifford provided them with the answer. Get rid of the frame, go inward. What is it that you have to say? And so on. This group of artists was called the Irascibles. And I don't know about the other artists, but that definitely fits still, who ended up fighting with almost all of them. In particular, he thought Mark Rothko had sold out to that sort of artist-industrial complex. Uh, still said he told Rothko that. Rothko moved on, back where he belonged, into his fuzzy Bauhaus cultural associations, and was very happy to leave the rigor I set for the creative act Let's just stop for a minute. So can I ask where those tapes come from? Well, as a documentarian, it was a moment that you dream about. I had agreed with the museum to make this documentary film before I knew of the existence of the tapes or 30 hours of tapes, I'll have you know, Dennis, or the 20 minutes. Dennis, I'm so sorry to interrupt. Your cell phone is cutting out just a little bit. I don't know if you've moved around in your home. Nope, I'm not. I'm on a landline. Oh, you're on a so, landline. Uh, okay. Yeah, well, better. even those can be iffy. But uh, yes, I, I imagine that for a filmmaker, this is like a gold mine. Oh, yes. When I got the call from the archivist and they said, you're not going to believe what we found, I was gleeful because it was really still in his own words. And that's a very difficult thing to obtain from a subject that's been gone for 35 years. Yeah. 
So that was an amazing moment. And of course, it's also still at his most cantankerous, almost brutal to somebody like Rothko, who he had a beautiful relationship with in the early years. They encouraged each other. They helped each other in so many ways. Rothko wrote the first uh, essay on Still's work for his show in New York. But as the years went by and Still clung to his uh, his integrity and refused to be part of this art world that made the artists almost like a secondary thought. Rothko went on and said, hey, I have a family. My paintings are selling. I'm going to make what I make. Fuzzy rectangles. Oh, my, what a takedown. <sighs> Fuzzy rectangles. That's how he wound up describing Rothko. I like those fuzzy rectangles so i, I guess think we all do yeah in that way i might disagree with clifford still he sounds mean still does do you think he was mean you know when i started to make the film my biggest concern was that i wanted to make sure that i humanized him and the way i was able to do that was both in talking to his family number one and second in using that 28 minutes of home movie footage clifford still was fiercely passionate about his role in contemporary art uh, and would do anything, including be cantankerous, uh, be difficult about it. But to his family, he was a loving guy. He was a loving father. He loved his daughters, and uh, uh, they feel that way to this day. They also, though, were awed by him in the same way that most people were at the time. I mean, Robert Motherwell called him the original. Yeah, I mean, the film features both Sandra and his other daughter, Diane, and they do share loving memories of him. But there's a memorable scene where Sandra describes him standing over her crib as a baby. Uh, I'm sure she heard this story much later in life, but what, what does Clifford still say to his daughter? He says to his daughter when she's in her crib, just a, a month or two old, he says, I love you, babe but you'll never come first. The painting will always come first. Wow. Yeah, I mean, there's a brutal honesty to that as well. I, I, I even wonder if most people who would put their child second would even have the self-awareness to say so. I think that says something about Still too. Well, I think that for him, he felt like he was the most important painter of his time. And he wanted to be considered in the same breath as people like Rubens. Uh, you know, he wanted to be thought of as an old master painter because, in his mind, those were the painters. Things that were going on around him at the same time, he respected the work to the extent that he could, but he really felt like he was uh, so far ahead of everybody and everything that he was doing was liberating people. He was allowing them to put the canvas up on the wall in a much larger scale than we'd ever seen before. Invite the viewer to almost enter the canvas and to create a painting in which there were almost no borders. And that liberated Pollock, that liberated uh, Barnett Newman, who he didn't like very much either, uh, and it liberated Rothko. So he, he was not wrong about who he was. But of course, history has shown that if you withdraw and you disappear from the art world, the art world ignores you. And that's what had happened to Clifford Still later in his life. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And the film director and art collector Dennis Scholl joins us to talk about his new film, Lifeline Clifford Still, which uh, is available for streaming. Details on that in just a moment. But um, uh, he called the Museum of Modern Art a gas chamber of culture. 
and he wasn't much kinder to some of the people who paid for his work. I'm thinking of one time when Still didn't like the way a painting was displayed in someone's home. Tell us that story just briefly. Well, um, Osorio, who was the uh, heir to the Domino Sugar Fortune and was also an artist and still had struck up a relationship and still lent Osorio a painting. Osorio then came back to Still and said, hey, I'm going to lend the painting you lent me to a show in Europe. And Still said, no, no, you're not. I want you to send that painting back to me right away. And he didn't do it. Still drove cross country, got in a car with his daughter, went to Osorio's house, searched the house while Osorio was upstairs, afraid to come down, found the painting, took a knife and cut the heart out of the painting, turned around and walked out. We still have that piece of canvas that he cut out at the museum. So literal and so figurative to cut the heart out of something. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Now, the story evolves over years. And of course, you know how that goes with kind of a, you know, uh, the playing of telephone. But Sandra tells the story later in years that Osorio finally came downstairs, saw Still there, and Still shook his finger under Osorio's nose and said, when I tell you to return one of my paintings, you obey my order. Still had forgotten he had the knife, and Osorio thought Still was going to slit his throat. Oh, my goodness. And, of course, the exacting nature continues past his death onto the museum that would be built with his works, which winds up in Denver and can only show Still's works exclusively. Uh, Dennis, thanks so much for spending time with us. It's my pleasure. I hope people will come out and see the film. Dennis Scholl directed the documentary Lifeline Clifford Still. It's available now for streaming at kinonow.com. Scholl has scheduled a showing in the Denver area in June. The Still Museum is closed here, but there's an online collection of his paintings and another 2,300 works on paper, including some pastels from the 1970s. That's at cliffordstillmuseum.org. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.